a stranger with a gun came upon two teens taking pictures under a rising full moon. But violence is only the beginning of this story. Sometimes I thought, there are no miracles. Yeah, there are. And this is a big one. I'm Amy Donaldson, and I've spent my career talking about how lives are undone by violence. The Letter is a podcast about how lives are remade. Follow The Letter at theletterpodcast.com or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, welcome to Project Recovery, a podcast about addiction, but more importantly, it's about recovery. And right now, it's not brought to you by anybody. Just me and you and Josh. Yep. yep. Or maybe Recovery Strong. We're going to hear Jared uh, Shaw's story in just a second. Yep. Uh, but I want to talk to you about something that... So, as of uh, now, I've been on TV again for a month. Right. Oh, the month is up. Yeah, that's The month right. is yeah, up. Yeah, yeah. And uh, there's going to be a, a decision that's going to have to be made. And I'm not sure what I'm going to do on that yet. So, we're not going to dive into that right now. Okay. But one thing I want to talk about is I love... Meeting people who are rocking their recovery. And by, mm-hmm. I mean, rocking it, like just proud of it and their ownership. And, uh, I've, you know, I, I did this job for 20 years before I had to take the three year, uh, hiatus. Right. And I'd have conversations with people at live shots and out in the public. And I never really got to know them. You know what I mean? It was all somewhat superficial. Uh, I mean, I, I mean, I, I had some good interactions with people, but now the conversations I'm having with people, are so authentic and so not superficial. Well, they're about real things that mean a lot to them, like their recovery, right? And, and so, like, I bet you 70% of the time I'm doing a live shot. Uh, when the cameras are off and we're talking and figuring out what we're going to shoot next and what we're going to talk about, inevitably it goes to recovery. And it's either them who are rocking their sobriety or someone they know who's rocking their sobriety or somebody who they know is battling with addiction, but it becomes just this, this, this freeing, uh, this mm-hmm. weightless conversation where we're just going, man, how are you? And, and then helping each other out. It, it, it's just, it's, it's wonderful. What's really cool about that is that it, it illustrates um, a theory that I think most of us in mental health have had for a long time is that people are carrying around stuff inside and they're waiting for permission to talk about it. And one of the reasons that people don't talk too much about substance abuse addiction and recovery is because of the stigma that's been always associated with it. So now that you've, along with a lot of other people, kind of pioneered this movement over the last five to 10 years of bursting that bubble, I'm not surprised that people come up and talk to you about it because guess what? It's in everybody's family. It's in everybody's friend circle. Uh, People carry that around. They want to talk about it. But for the longest time, families were suffering in silence because Mm -hmm. they didn't know who they could talk to. They didn't know if they should talk to. And they didn't want the stigma of knowing that they have somebody or themselves in their family battling with addiction. And it was just this like I I, I said it all the time is like after I, you know, I got out of rehab, I had so many people come up to me and go, we saw it coming, but we just didn't know what to say. And I was like, well, you could have said anything. Right. And to be honest with you, I don't know if I would have responded no, how you wanted me to. Probably not. But, you know, all of a sudden I was in this fraternity that I didn't want to be a part of. Yeah. And I found all these brothers that I knew in my real life that I now find out I really didn't know because I didn't know that they were battling with the same things I was battling. Right. Everybody keeps it to themselves. And and now we're having this open conversation, and that's what this podcast was designed to do, is to open up the conversation, the good, the bad, the ugly. Right. 
And so I, it, it's just, I love seeing somebody rock their sobriety and just being like, you know what? Rock their recovery. I, I want to go because I saw something the other day. There's a difference between recovery and sobriety. Big difference. And a lot of times that gets people think, well, I'm sober. Well, okay. Which is a, a feat and it, a wonderful that can be thing. A, 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 a tremendous accomplishment. Accomplishment. Yeah. But recovery is doing something with your sobriety. It's a lifestyle. It's a it's a total change in how you live your life. And you know, I, and we've said this before, um anybody can do a diet. And a diet will work as long as you just do that thing. White knuckle it. You can do it. Yeah, you know, I'm going on a cruise. I want to look good. I'm going to do a 15-day cleanse. I'm going to stay away from carbs. And for the first day on that ship, I'm going to look good. You can do extreme things for short periods of time. Yes. Yeah. And I think a lot of people attack their sobriety like that. And uh, it, it, and it works until it doesn't it get work. you started, maybe. Yeah. Or, you know, something like that. But you really need to think of it as a lifestyle change. Diets will not work. They'll work for what they're intended to, but you will gain well, the weight back. I mean, let's look at Oprah. You know, I mean, she's struggled with her weight, diet. She's gone down. She's gone up. Uh, she has all the resources in the world, mm-hmm. right? More than anybody, probably, to keep her eating right and exercising. Uh, but that diet uh, yo-yo has been tough for her, and it is for all of us, for sure. So it's got to be a lifestyle change. Well, and you know, sobriety can be uh, um, sobriety in many ways. I think, while I think it's healthier than being in addiction, of course, uh, it can also be a really unpleasant, unhappy part of life. There, there may be reasons why a person uh, utilized drugs and alcohol because their life is hard. Well, there's a term for it. It's called a dry drunk. Right. And, and so a, if you're a dry not, drunk is just not using, but he hasn't addressed any of the issues that he was using. Right. So he's just kind of hanging on. He might have been hanging on through addiction. Now he's hanging on through sobriety. And granted, that's better than being in active addiction. But you're right. We, we call it dry because they're not happy. They're not progressing. You know, that it's not necessarily a progressive part of life. You may be still contemplating. Um, I, I want to drink or I want to use because my life is still hard. Nothing's really improved except for that I'm sober. Or you would be saying to yourself, my life would be so much better if I could just have a drink. Right. right. And I can't. So now I'm going to sit here on my couch. I'm going to yell at kids to get off my lawn. And life's just miserable. I'm thinking I'm going to look into this. And if there isn't research on this, maybe I could talk to someone about doing a study. But if we could identify the difference between somebody who's sober versus somebody who's in recovery and if we could differentiate those two i wonder what the relapse rate is for those i'll bet you my theory would be that if you're just in sobriety but you're not really in recovery your relapse rate is much higher risk of relapse versus people who have shifted into recovery meaning it's a new lifestyle it's a new perspective they feel like their life is progressing in a healthy manner um, and sobriety is a subset of that, but they're doing a lot of other things like so many of our guests on the show. I'll bet that dramatically decreases relapse. My first year out of rehab, I would consider myself sober. Years two and three is when I started to work into recovery. I was always trying to work into it, but that first year out of rehab was just my goal. Number one goal was to stay sober. That was my number one goal. Mm -hmm. I mean, I was working to getting my life back and all that stuff, but it doesn't just happen overnight. No. And so, but my main goal was, it's just, I need to get to this year. 
And, and I wasn't even sure what I was going to do after the year. Right. right. I was going to say, listeners of the podcast, if they remember, you know, our check-ins back in that first year, it was all just trying to pull yourself together. A lot of it was financial stress and couldn't drive and emotional I mean, stress, a lot of emotional re- stress, relationships, and just trying to manage and navigate. And I'll that. be honest, one of the terrible things you do mm-hmm. is you downplay problems in your life, which is is also an awesome thing that you do because you're an optimist. But I think the listeners they don't really know how hard some of relationship issues were for you during that first year. I think you, we and you and I both tend towards the optimist side of life. And so we tend to like focus on the positive, but we could have spent a lot of episodes just talking about the struggles and the people that weren't supportive of you during that first year. So I remember a conversation with my girlfriend and she had to tell her ex-husband that she was dating me. And uh, now I'm good friends with this guy and, and he's a wonderful guy, but he was like, you think this is a good idea to have this guy around our kids? Right. Oh, yeah. And I, and, and I was like, I don't blame him. You know, I mean, I can tell you that I'm, I'm, I'm being honest and true and my intentions are, are pure, but yeah, I get where you're coming from, bro. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's, that's not a fun conversation to have. And I remember looking at my girlfriend and going, you know, I'm, I'm doing everything I can, but, and she's like, how tough was it for her? Well, she had only started dating you two what, months, two months before you got into rehab. Yeah. She didn't even know I was an alcoholic. Well, she found out. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, along with along the whole state. Everybody else. Yeah, you know. <laughs> she woke up and she was like, whoa. Hey, my boyfriend's got a mugshot. Yeah. This is not good. It's fresh. Yeah. And so, but I mean, but that's, I mean, there was, I mean, there was times that I had to take my daughter's bike to the grocery store to get milk because they needed that's a good look with the basket right yeah it was orange it was creamsicle yeah and and i mean i had to go and and, you know and those were the things i remember walking to my kid's school to see my son perform in the third grade play you know and everybody else is and i'm walking yeah and and that was just one of those things that i go i got myself here this is what i need to do and i'm not gonna let him down that's that trying to stay sober trying to deal with the fallout of everything that's happened in your life um, the reason I sort of tease you about not talking about that is just to, it's good to remind the listeners that if they're struggling with those things or they know someone who is, that's normal. It, it could have been easy just to sit on the couch and scream at everybody and say, why did you do this to me? Yeah. You know, and, and, and yeah, some of it was fair, some of it was unfair, but I go, that's not going to get me where I need to be. And yeah. so whatever it takes, I'm going to do. And that's like probably what the second week into rehab where I go, okay, whatever you guys tell me to do, I'm going to do it. Uh, everything that I've tried, that's didn't the best work. attitude. So Just give up and give in and let's work give hard. everybody, let's give somebody else a shot at running, uh, running me for a while and see how that goes. They did a good job. I think so. I'm very happy and pleased with my progress. Uh, I know I'm not done and I've got a long ways to go. Well, it's, it's a, it's a lifestyle change. And I think that's why we call this show project recovery is we want to focus on, it's not good enough to just be sober, especially for the person who's doing it like yeah. your life can be so much better than just sober yeah and and, and right now it, it, i'm having a wonderful life and i'm really enjoying it uh before we get to our guest uh may is mental health awareness month that's right and you brought a little quiz that we should be asking ourselves. well i i have a challenge okay okay and i think we'll do this throughout the month have a little challenge uh may is mental health awareness month i think every month's mental health awareness should month be. for me because that's what i do so i forget to sort of highlight may sometimes on our show but here's a challenge okay 
One of the biggest problems uh, in mental health awareness is that we don't talk about it within our families. So we don't talk about, like, within families, if, if grandpa died of uh, heart disease or cancer, we'll, we usually talk about those things. Like if we have a propensity towards, you know, things running in our family for physical diseases. But mental health issues, we, we rarely talk about. Usually, and because I know this for a fact, because when I visit with a patient for the first time and sometimes in subsequent visits, I have to, I want to ask and have to ask about family history. So I had a conversation with a person today about psychosis and does it run in their family? And of course, what did the lady say? She didn't know. She's like, I don't know. Like my uncle had some problems. I was, well, describe them for me. Well, he went to a hospital. What kind of hospital? I don't know. Like there's not a conversation that would empower her to be able to talk about propensities like depression, anxiety, psychosis, uh, substance abuse and addiction, those kinds of things that might run in our families. So here's the challenge. The challenge is if you are, I, I guess at any age, but especially if you're a parent or a grandparent, take this month as an opportunity to sit and write down what you know about your family histories uh, of mental health and share it with your family members. You know, if you have to send out an email, that might be a weird email or a text to send to everybody or talk to them one on one and just say, you know, this is what I know about what grandpa went through or what your aunt went through or, you know, what your mom and I have gone through. Like talk to your kids. And if you're a young adult and you wonder about your family history, the challenge goes in reverse. Ask, ask your parents, ask your grandparents, talk about it. It shouldn't be shameful. It should be empowering. Because if we know what runs in our family, if you know that uh, that every generation of men in your family have died of a heart attack, don't eat bacon, right? Yeah. Like you, you need to be told the bacon's not for you, buddy. Like let's work on our cholesterol and all that kind of stuff. If alcoholism runs in the family, if alcohol runs in the have family. Have that conversation yes. with your kids young, so they yes. know what they might be signing up for. If depression runs in your family, you need to know. And what the signs are for young children, teenagers, young adults. But I think most of the time as parents, we we, we kind of bite our tongue and, and, and cross our fingers and hope it doesn't go to the generation after us. Yeah, well. But I mean, but that's, <laughs> but I mean, that's. We can hope. But guess what? There are biological factors. There are heritability factors. And we do model lifestyle whether we realize it or not. And so those things continue to put generation after generation at risk uh, sort of blindly. The kids growing up don't know. Mm-hmm. And so that that's my challenge for that, – that, that's today's challenge for Mental Health Awareness Month. Be more aware. Share it or ask about it, but talk about mental health history in your family. I love it. Hey, our guest today, his name is Jared Shaw. He runs a company called Recovery Strong. And uh, we just and we, talk, he and I have something in common. Both from Oregon? That's right. Yeah. I was going to say handsome, but – Well, he Yeah. Well, Josh, you're handsome too. He's looking at like, what about me? You're- I, I don't think I, I don't. Jared's in a sort of a class of his own, you know. We're going to find out more about Jared's story and how he got to just about eight years of sobriety in just a few seconds. You're listening to Project Recovery right here on KSL. Two friends taking pictures of the rising full moon on a summer night. Two teenage kids doing what teenage kids do. When a stranger with a gun and a death wish changed everything. It was violent, it was senseless, and I will never understand it, I will never accept it. I'm Amy Donaldson, and unfortunately, we're all too familiar with stories about how violence shatters lives. 
but what we rarely see is how they are rebuilt. In a new podcast, The Letter, we relive tragedy, but only so we can hear the rest of the story, the struggle to reclaim lives, the realities of grief, and the possibilities of forgiveness. I believe in miracles. Sometimes I thought, there are no miracles. Yeah, there are, and this is a big one. Follow the letter at theletterpodcast.com or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, welcome back to Project Recovery. I'm Casey Scott. That's Dr. Matt Woolley. He's a clinical psychologist. Our guest today is Jared Shaw. Uh, he's the founder of Recovery Strong. Yep. Um, and uh, you know what? I've Ever since I've been in the recovery world, your name pops up all the time. People like, do you know Jared Shaw? He's doing these amazing things. And so I've tried to get you on the podcast a while ago. It didn't work out, but I'm happy to have you. Thanks for inviting me again. Uh, so where does the story of Jared Shaw begin? Well, Davis County boy, uh, went, grew up in Fruit Heights, went to Davis High. Um, I'm, I'm going to fit the profile of a perfect alcoholic addict, you know, middle <laughs> child of six, uh, right in the middle, got lost in the shuffle. Um, and just, you know, but I had a good family. I had a great growing up, you know, we never went without, we, but for some reason I am the only one affected by drugs and alcohol in my family. I am the one who has this cross to bear, but I, I love it. You know, now I do. It was a lot so, of help growing for a long up, time. being the middle child. And you said you felt left out, lost to the shuffle. My, uh, my brother was a, a better soccer player than I was. So, you know, two mm-hmm. years older than me. So I was always the guy in the shadow, you know? So, yeah. Do and you, let's not <clears throat> underestimate that. That's yeah. kind of a tough thing for a kid growing oh, yeah. up because Everybody um, growing up, you need to feel uh, important and validated, and 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 that's why kids and and young teens often try out lots of different sports or music, or they, they try they're trying to find something their niche that they shine at because that's how we develop our self concept. So, I've talked to a lot of people who have an extraordinary older sibling who kind of ate up the spotlight. And sometimes that was really egged on by parents. And sometimes it was just the perception of the kid. But, you know, who've had older siblings that were amazing students or athletes or musicians. They just shone in some way that was amazing. And that can really uh, make your own personal identity development a struggle. And I'm wondering if that's what you meant by that. Yeah, and it was me. You know, my parents were at every soccer game. They showed up to everything I ever did. It wasn't that they chose him over me. You know, it was a, like you said, it was the perception of me. You know, I'm in the shadow. And so they were 100% supportive. I never went without. I got to go do all the things I wanted to. But the fear, you know, of not being good enough, you know, the younger brother syndrome type thing, you know. The negative talk. Yeah, exactly. You know, stuff that I still deal with today that i have to work on you know but but living in the you know in the shadow of the spotlight you know so that's that's one thing i've dealt with so at an early age did you feel like an outsider not necessarily i just i felt like i i had a a lot to offer but yet i couldn't do it i don't know why you know i've I always thought that i have more to give to this world even you know when i got sober that was the same thing I, i've always felt like i have more to give but i'm holding myself back you know and that can go into a lot of things i do in my life today but i just i just feel like that um trying to word this correctly the the confidence level was not there what kind of things did you uh do as a kid so you mentioned soccer did you did you play soccer 
Played soccer, Davis High. I got kicked off the soccer team for smoking <laughs> marijuana. Okay. So, you know, in my senior year. All right. I think that was it. Maybe it was because of grades, but if we go down, it was because of marijuana that I didn't get good grades, and then I get kicked off the soccer team. But um, but after that, so the identity thing, you know, my brother was a great soccer player. He tried out for the U.S. national team, you know, stuff like that. So that's kind of wow, what I'm impressive. dealing with, yeah. you know, so there's a lot of spotlight on him. But so after I got kicked off the soccer team my, my uh, senior year, I kind of wanted to be a cowboy. You know, I went the cowboy route. So I was like, I'm not going to go do anything my other family's doing. I'm going to, you know, plow my own path. And, and so I went and did the cowboy thing. And, uh, you know, and just that was fun because I finally was able to build an identity. And then the whole cycle started over because I was friends with guys that were professional rodeo cowboys who were making money. So I, so I was going to ask you, because, <laughs> you know, I grew up in Morgan. Yeah. <laughs> so when you say I wanted to be a cowboy, what what was that vision in your head? Because some people, when they say, I want to be a cowboy, it's the rodeo life, right? Yeah. Like, they're going to do that. Other people, Or Yellowstone. Or Yellowstone, yeah. right? They're going to have their cattle. Uh, so was that, what was your vision of, like, I want to be a cowboy? Because I dare say you're the first person on our show <laughs> in three years that was like, I want to be a cowboy. Main Frost. Yeah, well, I used to love eight seconds. But so we had a little piece between my grandpa's house and my house. There was, a, like, a quarter acre. You know, he had a swimming pool, basketball court. All the guys at Davis High would come play on the basketball court. They'd swim. There was a piece of property right there. And I was like, I'm going to build a horse corral. I build a horse corral. I'm going to buy a horse. <laughs> you know, like, I guess this is the, the ambitious side of me. So I got a horse, you know. That's pretty and, ambitious, uh, So yeah. I wanted to just be a cowboy. So then I went and we later on in life, I went to Jackson Hole and lived in a tent on the mountain right out of high school. So because yeah. I didn't want to go on a mission. I didn't want to go to school. I did rodeo. I did trips up there on the mountain doing. I didn't know how to saddle a horse at that point, so it was all like, "Hey, you want to work for me?" I'm like, "Yeah." So you know, I learned everything from the from that, and then I started hanging out with the rodeo cowboys in Farmington, and then that's mm-hmm. when I learned how to rope, and then bought some horses. You know, so, so it, you did learn how to do. Oh all yeah, that stuff. oh yeah. yeah. I went to rodeos. I was I was been at the NFR. I've been sponsored by Cords Light for partying. You know, that's a whole other thing. It's a very interesting side of my life back when. I could use and and drink and it was okay, but then the bottom fell out. Uh, you know, about that same time, but, as it often yeah. does. Oh yeah. So but, a lot of this does come back to. I mean, a lot of your life path. Not to. I don't want to overemphasize what you said at the very beginning, but uh, uh, everything you've said so far in your like life path trajectory is about identity. You're like, I don't yeah. want to be like everybody else. Yeah. I don't want to. I want to be different than my family and. Holy cow! You did it. I mean, you you headed out. Like you built a crowd. You got a horse. You moved away. You learned to to rope. I mean, you, yeah. you really jumped in with both feet. Jared, I want to ask you something because, yeah. uh, it, and it's something that I just dawned on me. But my identity um, was known as the partier. Yeah. And it was something that I excelled in. And you know what I mean? And yeah. I was really good at it until I wasn't. But I mean, I was the guy that they said, hey, if we're going to have a party, we've got to have Casey. Yeah. You know, if we're going to do this, we're going to have Casey because he brings the fun. Yeah. And that became my identity. Yeah. Do you feel like that somewhat became your identity too? Or were you drinking then to – why were you drinking? Well, so back – let's go back a little bit to like my first drug use, you know, in high school. So mm-hmm. I was – I didn't use – drink alcohol pretty much until I was probably a junior in high school. You know, I I always was taught – 
don't drink, you'll get addicted. Or don't use drugs, you'll get addicted. Don't drink. Sounds like you grew up in a <laughs> LDS, LDS home. home LDS home. The you, standard yeah. was no, yeah. no alcohol, no drugs. Okay. So it scared me. You know, and I remember being in church one day when I was a young kid saying, I will never touch that stuff, you know, because I was taught that. And so, but then something in me, like, I want to be different, you know. So, but the first time I ever got high was an accidental high. It was an accident. My mom had some Lortabs in the kitchen or in her cupboard, which is a typical story. And I had a headache that morning. I was a senior, I think, no, I was a junior in high school, but I took one Lord tab when we built the portables for Davis high. And that was my first class carpentry. And I just remember that feeling when I got to school, I was up on the roof and everything just went away. Like it was the, and, but at that point I had no idea what that feeling was, you know, and it did, I didn't chase that feeling for, you know, a while. That was, and then, then I started partying, you know, then, then my buddy's dad was a pharmacist too. And so after I realized, okay, the drug was what made me feel so good. You know, maybe I'm naive today, but back then I didn't really understand it. But, but then as I was introduced to more drugs and what pills could do to me without having alcohol in my breath, cause that's what I could do is take pills and not smell. And my parents wouldn't know because that would be bad if I smell like alcohol. Yeah. <laughs> so there's a lot of that. But then in high school, my senior year, that's when everything fell out the bottom. You know, that's when I got kicked off the team. Yeah. Just you know, my buddy would bring pills to school from his dad's pharmacy. He would still like, he would just grab a grip of pills and I don't know what I was taking. All I know is they worked really well, you know? And that that's which kinda, is dangerous as yeah, hell. Oh yeah, I mean, and that, but that's the adolescent mindset, right? Yeah. Like I'm 50, so like if I'm taking something, I like reading the bottle, and you know, like I, I don't know if I want to take yeah. this. Is it gonna you know mess with my sleep or whatever? Like I'm nervous about vitamins. Um, but when you're a teenager, that it's that impulse. It, it, you're so impulsive. You think you're bulletproof. So, yeah, you think you're bulletproof, and all of that stuff. And I can't tell you how many times I've talked to teenagers where they say, I took some pills, and I say, well, what did you take? And they're like, I don't know. They were the yeah. pills my friend gave me. And I'm like, so you took a bunch of pills that you didn't know what they were? Oh, and they're yeah. like, yeah. But that's not uncommon for that age, right? Yeah. I'm lucky. I don't know what I I mean, looking back, probably just, you know, Lord Tabs and and, uh, and some muscle relaxers. But I was watching a show the other day on TV about the fentanyl thing. You know, like mm-hmm. if I was a kid today, I'd be dead, you know, because I don't know what I'm taking for sure. You know, and it's just a scary time to be doing that kind of stuff because you don't know what's in pills anymore. But, you know, luckily there were some scary times, you know, when I got, when I got hooked on Oxycontin, that's when the light, my life went, you know, that has, goes back to the cowboy story of selling my horse that I bred and thinking I was going to buy a better horse, but I ended up buying Oxycontin with the money, you know? So it's kind of the whole thing, that time of my life just really went away, went away and just my identity changed. I became the drug addict. How so many Oxycontin become, can you get for a horse? <laughs> you know, I don't remember back in the day. There's I don't remember. There's probably a ratio. <laughs> was, I, was like, I was like, there's probably an app. You can look it up. <laughs> yeah, so, so that was traumatic. You know, you, you sell a horse that you you bred and you give away, you're, you're expecting, I don't know. You, I remember laying in the field with this baby horse after we had her when I was drunk, you know, I came home and I couldn't go into my, but I remember this, this little horse let me lay on its belly in a field, Oh man! you know, and then it would follow me around. But I remember that feeling like I had somebody that night that kind of understood me for some, it's a connection. Animals, uh, especially horses. And yeah, yeah. yeah. wow. That's, that's a heartbreaker. I wrote about it in my journal. The first time I went to rehab about selling that horse for Oxycontin. That must've been a heartbreaker. So yeah, that's harsh. So. so junior year, your first introduction, 
by your senior year, you said the bottom had fallen out. Yeah, it you know, kind of just... Falling out just, with your parents? Falling out with just, school, your friends? I think just giving up on... I didn't want to go to school. I barely graduated, you know. And my, the only reason I did graduate because my grandpa was a high school teacher there and he pulled some strings and I was able to walk. I didn't even want to go to graduation. And I think I got an alcohol ticket my graduation night. But, but the bottom fell out. That's when things started professing themselves that I had issues, but I still didn't know what was wrong with me. I, you know, cause my, all my other friends are going on missions and, and all this stuff, but I still thought that I was okay. You know, I just had some issues, but I didn't know what those issues were. Cause I was an alcoholic going back to talking about your challenge. Alcoholism doesn't run in a Mormon family. So <laughs> as far as you <laughs> yeah, know, yeah. So, wink, wink. Yeah. yeah I say that, uh, with, yeah, anyway, but so learning about my past, I'm going to take that challenge because I I know a little bit about it, but not the I'm as far as I'm concerned, I'm the first person that admits that I'm an alcoholic in my family. Well, and let's be honest about that. Culture plays a big role. Yeah. Um predispositions towards addiction run in families, but if you have a a family history of non-use because of religious belief, then you may be carrying some genetic predisposition and not realize it. So yeah. it can be a little bit harder to identify, yeah. but you might look at other sort of addictive behaviors that do run in them. So in LDS families, you might look at food addictions, um, people, you know, caffeine addictions, um, uh, pill addictions, because those sorts of things might sneak in for a person that has a predispos- predisposition to addiction. Um, because they're either prescribed by a doctor, so perceived as okay, or they are technically okay because you're, it's just Wendy's. It's it's not marijuana, you know. And uh, and those sorts of predispositions towards addiction might manifest in sort of subtle yeah. other ways. But yeah, it it can be a little bit harder to identify in those families. Yeah, you're listening to Project Recovery. Our guest today is Jared Shaw. We're going to hear more of his story in just a few seconds. Welcome back to Project Recovery. I'm Casey Scott. That's Dr. Matt Woolley. Our guest today is Jared Shaw. Uh, he's talking about his early days of uh, using substances and alcohol. Uh, how long into your uh, partying ways did alcohol get introduced? Well, probably about the first night I drank alcohol was I was probably junior year at the same time. But I didn't use that as much as I did pills because, like I said, we couldn't, you know, you can smell alcohol. But the first time I drank, it was Zima. And uh, my buddy's parents owned the cafe at the Davis County Golf Course, and we broke. We'd go in and steal beer from that place. And so, I drank a Zima and decided to go talk to the police officer at the Seven Eleven on Main Street and Two Hundred North, thinking, mm-hmm. "Oh, that's Officer Barlow. He likes me." You know, I was really, I, I was just very charismatic with one drink, and. I go up, talk to him and he's like, you've been drinking. And I'm so, you know, I'm just like, I'm an idiot. I'm talking to a cop. And my first time I drank. And so I get Moment an alcohol. I drank, I get a ticket. So that same night, let's go down to Salt Lake. Let's, let's go down to one of the clubs. I can't remember if this is the Bay or something like that. And I'm like, my mind, I'm like, okay, I already got an alcohol ticket. doesn't matter. So we go down the Bay, we're drinking and, uh, get another ticket that night because cops are watching us across the street. And I even told the cop, I'm like, I've already got a ticket day. You can't give me another one. And he said, that's not true. <laughs> so, that works. So, that, so I'm two for two on that, on the first time I drank. <laughs> so it was an expensive cops drink. Love to be told what they can't <laughs> yeah. do, by the way. I don't know if you know this, but you can't give me one. Yeah. I've already got one. They were watching me from a hotel parking lot and I just was like, oh my gosh. But anyway, looking back, I laugh at it, but that was that was huge because I didn't I didn't want my parents to find out 
I didn't know how I was going to pay for these tickets, you know. So You're that like was the 17, first, maybe. Yeah, and I and I didn't have a job at that time. I didn't know how to work, and so that was huge. But you know, that was my first introduction to drinking, and so I I realized if I use pills, I don't get in as much trouble. You, like you can't smell it, and so that's when I started taking pills. And then alcohol, it went was never the big thing I used, other than when we go to rodeos. That's you know that's what you do at rodeos. You go and drink. And but when OxyContin came about, that's when Oxy was the my, my drug of choice. Let me know? ask you a question. So you've mentioned two things that yeah. make me suspicious of something else. Oh boy. So you mentioned <laughs> that that uh, you know the the ones Zima. I'm really sorry that you have to say that Zima was your first drink. That's we called it a cheerleader beer. No yeah. ego here. Okay. So you're drinking Zima. We're trying not to laugh. And uh, you have one Zima, and you get a little tipsy, and you go, all of a sudden you said, all of a sudden I was charismatic. Yeah. Okay. Then the other thing that tipped my interest was you said when you took that first um, opioid, yeah. Lortab or whatever, you you were on top of the, you were doing the construction, yeah. and you just felt like everything went away, yep. your, your words. So my question is, do you feel like up until that point as a kid, part of feeling different had to do with some underlying anxiety that you weren't aware oh, of. Yes, you know, I remember being in at Davis High because my brother was older. I remember being scared every day going to school. Yet a lot of people liked me. You know, I didn't have any reason to be scared. I didn't have to have anxiety. You weren't getting bullied. No, or I wasn't. On. The only time I remember ever getting bullied was when I went into the locker room that sophomores weren't supposed to go into, and I was getting threatened to get an ice bath from one of the high school football guys. But I remember hearing that, and I thought that meant I was going to get shot. You know, that fear because I was new in high school. But I remember that ice bath. Yeah, to, I just I was so scared. I didn't know what they were going to do to me. How the gangsters roll it. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And so, yeah. and I expected my older brother to put a stop to that. You know, I remember being in a, doing my driver's ed course, and the football coach was my driver. And I remember talking to it was my first time probably opening up and in, in a way and saying, "Hey, they said they're going to do this to me." But I didn't get any response, you know, and so it was like, okay, don't talk about your problems or anything. So it's, it, but I remember being fearful every day going to school at that point. And, and that that's was, that's interesting. So you yeah. tried to open up, yeah, and he didn't really, he did, yeah, yeah he, he talked to you just, about it. It just kind of val or validated the hey, they don't the care, they're not going to yeah. do anything for you right now, you know. So, so that, just deal with it. That's kind of what I thought because it's interesting how. Uh, people who, and I, I don't have a stat or a research article on my mind to support this, but, uh, it seems in my practice and here on the show, people who have that aha moment when they take, uh, an opioid for the first time and they go, they say, like what you said, everything went away or I all of a sudden felt like I could relax and talk to people, you know, that often is the release or relief from, Anxiety and, and a lot of people misunderstand anxiety as like, you know, it's OCD and hand washing or it's specific worries that have, sometimes it's more in your body. A lot of people have just that fearful, uncomfortable, hesitant every day. Is everything going to be OK? Vigilant, like looking around and then they realize I don't really have a reason to, to be this way, to feel this tension and fear, but I feel it all the time. And then you have a drink or you have a pill and all of a sudden, boom. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I, like I said, I wouldn't have known what that was. No, of I course. Was, yeah. Nobody like talks looking about that. Now, yeah. now maybe you now can maybe. because yeah. of the way that uh, the stigma is being broken. But yeah, at that How time. How old of I, a guy were you uh, or are you now and were you? I am f- 
40 years old, I forget. You're I turned 40. 40 last year, yeah. Okay, so, so had, you were going to high school through the mid to late 90s. Yeah, I graduated in 2000. Yeah, so. and so I'm a decade older than you, but that, that was the height of the opioid cri- yeah. crisis. I mean, maybe not the very, very, but that's when it all of a sudden became a, a big problem, yeah. Yeah, because in 2003-ish, 2004, that's when I got addicted to Oxycontin, and that's when that's when things really helped me out a lot you've yeah. mentioned oxycontin a couple of times yeah. how did you get introduced to it just i'd probably taken it before with the buddy who'd given me pills but um it was up at i, I want to say college up at utah state when i graduated and I, I wanted to be a vet you know being a cowboy I, went, I was trying to go up to utah state and do that i wanted to be a equine uh veterinarian and work on racehorses that was my goal and i i started using oxycontin up there um first year and at this time i started a construction company and i'm not sure if the timeline is exact but it doesn't really matter but oxycontin was the best thing that ever happened to me at that time in my life because it got me to all those things we talked about it let go of the anxiety i could go to class i could do things it worked good for four months and then it ripped everything out from my life you know and so that's that that's the one drug that really took me down fast and hard and then not still not understanding that i was an addict because i that was a bad word to me or an alcoholic it took going to rehab to learn about addiction, you know, and that's, and that was tough though. But I used to watch my friends. I had a buddy who went to treatment and I was so jealous of him that he got to go to treatment because I was just stuck in this cycle of buying drugs, buying drugs. And I just didn't know what was wrong with me. And then he, I remember being jealous when he said I'd go into rehab tomorrow because I bought pills off him. And I was like, I want to go get help, you know, but I didn't know how to at that point. And my sister had a huge, uh, huge, uh, impact on getting me help so so on the podcast uh people usually describe their rock bottom okay what does yours look like oh man there's been a couple you know the first time i got the first time i ever went to treatment i was 24 years old and that was when we i pawned everything my family had i stole my sister's wakeboards uh everything I owned a value was in a pawn shop. My company, I couldn't even, I, I started a construction company at that time and couldn't even open a checking account. Went to Mesquite to gamble and play, you know, going down to a rodeo and uh, lost thousands of dollars. Got And at that time, my brother was employing me as well. I stole money from his company. And finally, when I got back, they had a meeting at my sister's dance studio that you know about mm-hmm. upstairs. There was a whole group of my family up there, basically an intervention. And my grandpa was there. My fam- All my family was there. And they all, it was, what's wrong with you, Jared? What's wrong with you? You know, and I was like, nothing's wrong with me. You know, what's wrong with you guys? And finally, we were all yelling back and forth. And, and um, my sister Kim walks upstairs and, and she just says, Jared, do you need help? And that was kind of like the first time I was like, somebody came at me with a little different approach, a softer approach. And I don't know if I was just ready at that time, but it was the right words at the right time in the right tone. And I just broke down and I said, yes, you know, and, and that day I, I was in treatment three days later, you know, I didn't stay sober for more than two years, but that's when I was introduced to a program of recovery. And I finally tasted a life that I thought could be had, you know, and it, it was beautiful. I loved, I loved going to rehab. I loved learning about myself and what was wrong with me. And that lasted for almost two years. And then my grandpa died and I 
kind of went back out at that point. You know, so. sometimes uh, sort of in a superficial joking manner, you meet somebody cool and you say, oh, we really vibed. You use that term, we vibe mm-hmm. with each other, that kind of thing. But I think there is something to that. And I think a lot of times people have an experience like you just described where you don't, you're, it's, I would call it pre-conscious awareness. You're not really aware. You're not really thinking the words, I need help. But it's sort of back there. It's just kind of, it's on a wavelength, you know. And when your sister came in with that soft approach and said, you need help, I think that speaks to that. And it brings it from pre-conscious to conscious awareness. And and it feels different. Like you said, all of a sudden it was like, sometimes we call that, you know, an epiphany or insight. But it's when those two vibes connect and you're on the same wavelength for a moment, it can do powerful things. Um and that's why sometimes families are smart to your family's great for 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 loving you enough to to all meet there and try to have an intervention uh but sometimes families would benefit from having somebody help them because yeah. you're more like you know an interventionist to help create that connection because if you can connect with the addict on their wavelength if you can bring their preconsciousness up to their awareness and hit that vibe and because you knew somewhere inside of you, you were like, ah, something's wrong. Yeah. I need help. But when t- people are aggressive, what do we do? You know, we push back. Oh, yeah. Walls come up. Yeah. So that's cool. Yeah. I'm curious about the two years of sobriety you had. And you said you got a taste of what life could be. Yeah. You know, I did. I it was hard. You know, I was I was ready when I went into treatment when my up uh, up in Park City, it was inpatient 60 days. Um I was all in, you know, I wanted to learn about what was wrong with me. You know, that's when I was introduced to the 12 steps. I was introduced to the disease model. I was introduced to a lot of things that finally I was like, oh, this is what's wrong with me. You know, there's something. This is why I do what I do. There's stuff behind this. There's there's consequences um, and reasons. But um, so I did 60 days inpatient, did 90 days outpatient, driving to Park City four times a night. You know, now I couldn't afford it because you (laughs) know, gas prices. prices, but, But. but it, I was willing to do whatever, and I and honestly, first time I went to rehab, I graduated, had a lifetime guarantee scholarship, whatever you call it, and uh, that was the first thing that I was proud of that I graduated from. You know, my whole family was there, and it was I've graduated from two rehabs, and so those are my proudest days mm-hmm. of my life. You know, and I joke about it, but it's 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 the best thing it. that's ever happened to me. You I know, get it. and and but in that two years that you were sober. Yeah. Uh, did things get better with your family? Uh, did they get better? They they got more educated as I did. You know, they didn't jump in like, you know, we had free family groups and they could have gone and learned. My parents did their best, you know, and I and I remember being resentful, but th- that they didn't jump in as much as I did. But then I had a cool sponsor that just that taught me you got to just do what you can do. You know, you can't blame them for stuff anymore, you know, so. I I jumped in. They kind of stayed a little bit um, less involved. I I think that they're still learning about recovery. What this second time around, they're learning a lot more about it because I'm more open. I feel like I'm more mature. Honestly, like I wasn't ready to stay sober. I don't think at that point in my life. I guess what I'm curious is is yeah. that after the two years and mm-hmm. then then your grandfather passing away, yeah, uh, it sounds like you took that pretty hard. Yeah, we were best friends. Uh, yeah. uh, and then you go back out. Mm-hmm. What was the family like? Like after you went out the second time, 
I was uh, good at faking like I was still sober for a while. You know, they kind of backed off at that point because they thought I was doing good. And that was the hard thing is I almost had two years and then all of a sudden I'm not celebrating my sobriety birthdays anymore. I'm not, I'm supposed to be sober, but I'm not, you know, and and it all started again with one lore tab. I was on a construction site. One of my employees asked me if I wanted to buy a lore tab. And I said, yeah, I haven't done lore tabs and know it almost two years now. So it started with a lore tab again, you know, and then from that day on, it went to five lore tabs. And then it went, I never, I don't think I did oxy very much at that point. It was mostly just buying pills and, and taking copious amounts of uh, lore tab tens, you know, buying 20, 30, 60 at a time and swallowing them all at once, you Whoa. know, and, and that's, with the Tylenol in it, you know, it was, it was, it was a long five year run. And, and when we talk about a new bottom, um, that bottom was just a spiritual and physical and just like, I'm going to die bottom. You know, I didn't get pulled over. I didn't get in any wrecks. I didn't lose anything other than just who I was again. And so finally when I had enough, I had enough and I just checked back into treatment. You know, there's a lot of between there. There's a lot of stuff that happened. And I can share one story, you know, of uh, one day my dealer couldn't get 10 milligram uh, uh, hydrocodines and so I had to buy fives and so to get my dose I had to take double the amount of hydrocodines to get what I usually take and so I'm taking that much more Tylenol I remember throwing up bile in Farmington we were on a street project and I just started my body was shutting down and I started puking and bile was coming up and I didn't know I had no idea what was wrong with me once again when you're throwing up out of your truck and there's it's green and I've never seen it before it freaked me out. And so I go to my grandma's house and I just, I'm like, I'm just going to sleep this off, lay down for three hours and then get back up. And, and I still don't feel good. And so I call poison control cause I'm scared. And, uh, they say, you need to get to the hospital quick. So I went to the, the uh, Davis County hospital, told them what I took, you know, was on completely honest with them. And they pulled all my blood and they wanted their, the lady was in there. The nurse was telling me what happens if you go into liver failure and you get it life lighted up to the U and I'm bawling, I'm praying, I'll never do this again. Like scared as I could ever be. Doctor comes back and says, did you buy Lord tabs? And I was like, yeah. And he said, you don't have any Tylenol in your system. And I said, well, I know I, I could feel it. You know, I could feel the Lord tabs. I had that feeling, but, um, said, you must metabolize Tylenol really well. And so at that point, all my prayers of I'm never doing this again, I walked out of that hospital, like busting the doors open, like I got a liver that can handle this this stuff. Sorry, mute button. No, you're, <laughs> but, that's, oh, it, it, I went from but isn't that how me, crazy that oh, brain and humble to I will do whatever I need to to stay alive today to, whoa, I've got Superman liver. I'm going, you know, well, I remember calling my dealer on the way out and getting more. You wow. Know? And but that, but I, but I couldn't. The, let's go back to the way I felt in the in the hospital. I couldn't call my parents at that time because they thought I was sober. That's back to the alone feeling of they think I'm sober. I'm not. I'm alone. How do I? Because I've let them down again. You know, I've screwed up again. You know, so that's that's what I remember that feeling. You know, mostly. But you know, I'm alive today, to, and that's what I love about what I do today. Because I bet that yeah. doctor was. If he's listening to the show, he's like, that's not the message I wanted you to yeah, take yeah, from it. I know. It was. Right. Yeah. But isn't that interesting how the addict brain works that way? Yeah. And you can so quickly go from begging and pleading and making every deal with God possible to like, oh, I'm okay. Oh, no, I'm, yeah. I'm good. I got this. Yeah. You know, I'm fine. Stay back there for a minute. I'll yeah. need you again soon. <laughs> 
So did you go back to the same rehab you went to the first time? I did an outpatient because at this time I still was, I had a bigger construction company. I was able to grow things, you know. The, Let's pause on this for a second. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> All right. So this 24-year-old kid starts a construction company, and you're, you're starting another construction company. You're making – like, that's impressive. That's another commonality that I know we've talked about before with people that come on this show – is you guys are kind of all in on something. When I was 24, I wasn't starting a company. I don't think that even crossed my mind the to same know how thing, to do that. The same thing that makes us successful business people is the same thing that makes us wonderful addicts. Right. It's the all-in mentality. <laughs> and it's what makes you great in recovery. But isn't that interesting how there's such a common thread? I pointed out one earlier, which is a lot of folks have this natural, biologically driven anxiety that they don't even realize is that big of a problem until they get a relief from it. And then the other one is just this all-out personality trait where you are just all in. So the fact that you just kind of nonchalant, yeah, so I started another construction company. <laughs> Actually grew it. it. Grew it, you know. Yeah. So anyway, I just wanted to kind of point that out that – that. uh Sometimes our strengths can be our weaknesses. Yeah, there's, you know, yeah, I guess I'm an entrepreneur. I've got three businesses that I do and, you know, um, I feel like I'm pretty humble about it, but I, yeah, I didn't know what else to do with my life. I didn't want to work. I tell people I would be the worst employee, you know, like people like you need to come work for us. I'm like, no, you don't want me to work for you. I will be (laughs) your worst employee, but if I can work for me. I'm pretty good at it. So, but yeah, the, the construction company and going back to Oxycontin, I worked, when I started this construction company, I was a runner for a huge law firm up here. I've actually delivered papers to this building when I was like <laughs> 20 years old, 21. I was a runner for the attorneys and it was a perfect job because I could use, you know, buy, buy my Oxycontin. But I remember being on the phone whenever I would do Oxy, I could call some of the people. I was starting my business at that time. It gave me confidence. You know, I could go in, I would, and I don't want to get too graphic, but I'd go in and I'd use, and it made me feel like I was in an attorney's office and it made me feel like I was powerful. Very, yes. Well, you're pulling one over on everybody, yeah. right? Because yeah. you're, you're, you're around a bunch of attorneys, but yeah. they don't know what you're oh, doing. Oh, yeah. And that's that, that sort of sneaky, empowering yeah. feeling like, aha. These guys, they, they, they can't touch me kind yeah. of thing, right? Oh, man. And, yeah. you know, that's so interesting that you bring that up because you have that drive and desire to be an entrepreneur. You're all out, but the anxiety, you know, kind of uh, uh, yeah. pushes the brakes and then you take something and all of a sudden it's gone oh, yeah. and you can do all these amazing things. Yeah. So that reinforces the use, right? Mm-hmm. Like oh, if, you, if you have something that's sort of holding you back, you take a pill and that thing goes away and all of a sudden you just crush it at whatever you wanted to do. That's behavioral reinforcement at its finest. Like, of course you're going to want to do it again. So it's not just a biological addiction. It becomes a psychological addiction, too. Yeah, and I I took it as... It, it helped me benefit because if I could make more money, because Oxycontin was not cheap at that time, you know, being a runner at a law firm, you know, if I could make more money, my eyes, I could do more drugs and the more money I made, the more drugs I could do. And it all worked out. And then it didn't, you know, that it worked out until it didn't. So, yeah. So the, it, and then, so the construction company, um, you know, I grew that and, uh, what was your question? Sorry, we're going back to, so you went to an outpatient treatment yeah. center. And so at this point, did you tell your parents that you relapsed or were you trying to do this under I the radar? I think I just didn't care anymore. I was done. 
you know, and I didn't care if people knew. I mean, there's probably a little bit of that behind it, but I just, I knew I was going to die. That was the bottom line. I knew that if I would check, I would wake up in the morning, look in the mirror and check my face and make sure my eyes weren't yellow and my body wasn't turning yellow from liver failure. And, uh, you know, and if that was not today, you know, then I have another day ahead of me. But then finally I just, I kept calling the treatment center and I said, I need help, you know, and then they got me in. It was January 5th, 2015, and that was the last time I ever used. And I drove every day to outpatient, running a company every night down to Sandy at this point. We did five days a week. I think I did nine to 12 months of outpatient treatment center. Didn't miss anything. You know, I watched my best, one of my really good friends die at three months in from, you know, liver failure. Um, but at that point, like I said, I just knew I wasn't going to survive. I don't have any more in me. I wanted something different in my life. And ever since that day, my life has just been awesome. And it was the best thing I ever did in my life was to get sober the and, second time. And how is uh, with the family now? Because I, I know your sister because my <laughs> kids take dance from her. Yeah. And I've met your mom and I know they are so proud of you. Yeah. Uh, they're, they're on board. Yeah. They love you. Oh yeah, I'm gonna tell you a story that happened. This might get emotional, but um, the other day, so my mom was on her way to uh, to St. George on Monday, and so I was down. My and I used to give my mom a hard time. My parents, you know, they weren't very good parents, you know, and but they were. They were they were awesome, and uh, I, I hold a lot of res- I hold I held a lot of resentment for my failings because of them. But I remember driving down by Ponds Park in Kaysville, and there used to be an old. Uh, metal slide there on the hill and and I drove by there the other day and it was a little hill with just a new a new feature on top of it they got rid of the old slide but I just I pictured myself as a little boy at that park and my mom was with me and I watched I remember going down this slide and my mom was there and and just the feeling I had that right there just going back in time like remembering like me there was two things I remember my mom being there and that I love myself and my mom was on her way to St. George and I was like, I need to call my mom and tell this story. And I didn't want to, cause it's hard for me. And sorry, I'm trying not to cry too. Cause I shared this in my recovery strong group the other night and it was a, it was hard, but, um, but I just called her up and I just told my mom, I said, mom, remember that, remember that slide you used to take me to? And she said, yeah. And I said, you know, thanks for taking me there that day. And you're, you were a good mom. And, you know, and I just started crying and she started crying and we just had a moment and I don't do that very often. And it was one to be able to give my mom feedback and tell her, I love her and tell her, thank you for all that she's done. That's probably the most important phone call she's had in a long time from me or ever. And for me to, uh, be able to look at myself on that slide and be okay with who I was and just try to remember that little kid be like, you know what? You love yourself. You're still, you're good enough. You can do what you need to do. Be a little easier on yourself today. You know? So there's a couple of lessons I had, but that, that slide for some reason, the last three days has been stuck in my mind, you know, and just, I don't know. It's just been cool. So my parents love them to death. And, um, it's just been, they're proud of me. Let's just say that. Sometimes oh, they're overly are. proud of me and I'm like, I don't need to be, you know, they told me I was coming down to KSL and my dad's like, oh, it's going to, and I, you know, I'm like, no, just stop, you know, like just <laughs> stop. I don't, you know, but, but, but yeah, you know, and just being involved in recovery, you know, and I started the recovery strong thing when I was nine months sober, you know. So let's talk about that. Yeah. What is recovery strong? So recovery strong is a lifestyle brand. I started at nine months sober and, uh, 
Oh, it's another reason she started. Yeah, yeah it, just it, it's on the list. You know? No, and it, it was more of a, I wanted to get, I wanted to be involved in recovery. You know, and I, and Ian's fit to recover. I used to watch him grow that when I was sitting in my in my bed, you know, trying to get pills, and uh, I watch him grow this little thing down in Salt Lake, and I was like, I want to do something. I want to be do something in recovery, and so. Finally, when I got sober, I, I ride a lot of bikes. I, do, I used to be a cyclist. I don't ride my bikes as much anymore. I run more. But uh, I was, we were in treatment, and my uh, my counselor asked, "What do you want? What are you guys going to do to change the the face of recovery or the stigma of addiction?" And I thought, "Oh, Lance Armstrong's Live Strong Foundation." You know, and I was like, "Recovery Strong." And within three months, I owned the name. You know, we had a website. You know, and it was just kind of a project for me when I first started. I wanted to open a gym up north, and then we talked about I don't want to own a gym anymore. I, I just I just want to be involved. So it's kind of an, it changed to a lifestyle brand, and a lot of people out of the state. We I've, it's connected me to a lot of cool people, and so and we do our free workouts at recover. You know, at my sister's every gym. Tuesday, every Tuesday night, six thirty. We've been doing that for almost five or six years now except during covid we had to shut it down but like this last tuesday we had about 20 25 people and that's just my way of giving back you know we work out for 20 minutes circle up check in and uh you know i shared that story a little bit more tears and it was it was a mess it was a blubbery mess Mm -hmm. that night but uh but yeah it's it's just something that i hope one day can be my full-time job that i can just and, and the recovery strong to me is just the way we live you know, there, it, what you guys are talking about, it's in sobriety, there's sobriety and then there's recovery. Sobriety to me doesn't sound fun. Yes, some people need sobriety, but I like recovery. I love recovery. Like, um, there's a blog on my website that I finally did my first blog like two months ago. We went down and rode motorcycles down, uh, in Tokerville. It's called the Tokerville Twister. And I was scared to do this ride. I was, you know, it's a considered a real hard ride. We went and did it, and uh, best feeling of my life, the highs I had from that thing. So I wrote about it. If you want to go to recoverystrong.com and read it, you know, it's the first real blog I've ever posted, but it just talks about fear, and it's, it's called Fear is a Liar. And uh, But just the, mo- the feeling I had, if you don't – and, like, coming onto this podcast, this is scary stuff. Like, this isn't what I do every day. I am nervous, um, but I say yes to a lot of things that make me nervous. And so, cause I become better because of it. So, well, but, I mean, we grow out of adversity. Yeah. I mean, I mean, that's, yeah, do that, hard things, you know, yeah. and, and that's one thing that I think an addict knows better than anybody else is that we can do hard things. Yes. If you've got sober, you know, you can do hard things because it's one of the toughest things in the world to uh, overcome. It mm-hmm. really is. Another one is asking people for help, mm. uh, admitting your shortcomings, uh, being honest with yourself. That's a tough one. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know what I mean? Is being honest with yourself. I mean, you were talking about, you know, you, you were happy when your friend got to go to rehab and, and you wanted help. Yeah. And you're like, but I wasn't sure I was an alcoholic. I didn't know if I was an addict or what. You know what I mean? Because chances are you knew, but you didn't want to have that conversation oh, with yeah. yourself and admit that, hey, I, yeah, I'm an addict. And now I'll tell anybody and everybody who asks. I don't oh. care. Mm, you know I what I mean? And, I'm, and, and if it bothers you, that sucks. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, right. it does. Yeah. But, but that, like, we had this girl, uh, Tony, on the show. And I remember her telling her, she tells all her friends. And I go, why do you do that? She goes, because if they're really going to be my friends, they really got to know me. Yeah. Oh, and sure. this is a real part of my story. Yeah. And so if I'm not being honest with you and that you know that, you know, this is where I was and this is who I was, then you don't know me. And yeah. I, if you want to be my friend, you need to know me. 
it's you know i i feel bad for people that you know you don't have to profess it either to you know it's no, a, to no, each no, his own no, i yeah. just but i feel bad that people don't want to there's so much freedom and just being who you are exactly owning it and and helping you know and using that to help other people because if, that's all i say in recovery strong is if i can help one person i've done my job you know and i hope i have and i've gotten letters from people from out of state you know and and obviously i want to change the world i want recovery strong to be bigger than uh, live strong. That's what my goal. And I, but I used to, I've got to get these again. I got all these, uh, wristbands that I had made because of that live strong foundation. And I just donate them. I give them to people, you know, if anybody wants one, email me, I'll send you one because I've had stories of people on a mountain ready to kill themselves. And they had one of my wristbands and they decided not to that day. Wow. You know, and, it, and I don't ever want that message to be about me. I want it to be about the name recovery strong, you know? So that's what I just wish I could be out of it and let people just have it be its own thing. Uh, you know, cause I'm fallible, you know, the, I think the brand or the, the name is huge and I just, I have a lot of high hopes for it and we got a lot of cool things coming up with Well, that, if somebody's so. going to grow it, I think it's going to be you, Jerry. I hope so. <laughs> I hope yeah. so. Well, I appreciate you stopping yeah. by and, and, and sharing your story. And at the end of the podcast, we always kind of talk about a takeaway and yeah. I think my takeaway is recovery is possible yeah. and you're living proof of that. And if it doesn't work the first time, it might work the second. Yeah. And if it doesn't work the second, it might work the third you have to keep we call going. that spiraling up yeah right i didn't know that was a thing but yeah we spiral up you can spiral down or you can spiral up and if you look at you know uh you know going into rehab several times and learning each time and getting stronger each time you're spiraling up and i think that's a good message and recovery is possible and i love what you're doing with it and i love that you're sharing the message and uh, I'm just grateful for you stopping by and uh, sharing your story. I'm grateful for your family. Uh, I'm going to let you in on a little story. Uh, so my daughter goes to his sister's uh, dance gym. Yep. And when I was right out of rehab and I didn't have a job um, and I had little money, um, my daughter loves to dance and she still loves to dance. And I called them and I said, hey, I know I'm behind in payments. Can, what can we do to keep my daughter in dance? And they told me about Jared, and they told me about what I was doing, and they, and they really liked it. And they said, make payments. We will keep Frankie in here. We will keep Presley in here, and we will keep them dancing. Wow. You keep That's... doing what you're doing, and you make payments. And what a relief that was. So once again, my addiction didn't take away something from my kids. That's special. You know, when somebody makes a real human connection – to help somebody else out. I mean, it was, I love it, that. It meant the world to me. And yeah. it meant that I didn't have to sit down and tell my kids, unfortunately, you can go to dance because I messed it up. up. Yeah. Yeah. That's impressive. So that's- I, I love your family and I will do anything for you guys. And I'm so glad you came by and shared your story. Uh, Dr. Matt, I love the spiraling up. I love the mental health check in. And I love the fact that we get to do this every uh, week. Me too. It's a highlight of my week every it, week. It, it, it's an amazing part. People all the time, they go, that's so good that you do this. And I go, you have no idea what it's doing for me. You and I me. walk out of here on, yeah. just like cloud nine. Yeah. And we just week. met our new best friend. Yeah. <laughs> I absolutely. love it. So thank you for listening to Project Recovery. Uh, in case you forgot, Project Recovery is what? It's a KSL podcast, baby. Recovery strong.
The contents of this program are for informational purposes only. The program is not intended to be a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Always seek the advice of your physician, licensed therapist, or other qualified health provider with any questions you may have regarding a medical condition. Never disregard professional medical advice or delay in seeking it because of something you've heard on this program. KSL does not recommend or endorse any specific tests, physicians, products, procedures, opinions, or other information that may be mentioned on the program. Reliance on any information provided on the program is solely at your own risk. I'm Dave Cauley, investigative journalist and host of the podcast, Cold. Don't miss Cold's new Season 3, where I look into the unsolved disappearance of Cherie Warren, a woman last seen leaving her job at a Salt Lake City office in 1985. Police cast suspicion on Cherie's estranged husband and boyfriend, but never made any arrests or recovered Cherie's remains. Find Cold Season 3, The Search for Cherie, anywhere you get your podcasts.